So our devoted Sundays are about us experiencing and understanding these things as a church. These special things that we do um, as believers that have been set aside for us um, to experience. We are like communion, baptism, family dedication. And we're reminded once again that all of this goes on after us. Um, So we need to be careful to invest in the the next generation and the things that the next generation can then also build on and invest in, the eternal value that that brings. That's why we're so proud to have all these little ones. Um, And and when we have little kids, it's a great reminder. I always try to use this as a reminder, just in case for all the people who are new to our church, um, that we are, we consider it a huge blessing that we have little kids in our church. And one of the things to remind you is that one of the things little kids do is they do little kid things. They make noises, and uh, they play around, and they roll around, and they cry, and they do all these different things, and we rejoice in that. Um, We challenge each other that if you're one of those people who's tempted to cut your eyes over at some young mom with her little kid making noise in the service, that uh, it may be you who has the problem um, that needs to be worked on at some level. So we're, we're excited and proud, and we consider it a huge gift that we have these, uh, have these families. So thank you for sharing with us. Um, part of this is we don't want to just do things and assume, especially that new believers or new church people um, know what they mean. But honestly, I was in church for many years before I knew what a lot of these meant. Um, it's easy to be in church for decades without understanding them. And another, this, this time, because about every four years we find ourselves so far in this situation where there's a totally different thing that I get to explain why we do it and what it means. Um, This time, what I'm going to unpack is the idea of a church working together in something called a capital campaign. Now, that that probably already just sends a little shivers up your spine if you've been involved in nonprofits and churches and stuff like that. And very often, this can unfortunately fit into some of the worst stereotypes and memes about churches, especially regarding money. Um, But I want to explain why. Why we, indu- why we do these kind of things. And I'm excited to unpack it for you over the next few weeks as well, more in detail. But I want to start with this. This will seem strange, certainly to you. If, um, if you've seen this done badly, or you've seen bad examples of this, or you've experienced that, or you've just never experienced it, that kind of stuff can be strange. But one of the values that it does for us as a church, when we start talking about these different things, kind of like the budgeting cycle that we go through, is it forces us into a conversation about economy. Here's what I mean when I say economy. Economy, economy, the conversation of economy asks the question, what do we prioritize? And then how do we make use of our resources to get there? That is true in your personal life. It's true in your family. It's true in your business. It's true in a church. There's a thing called an economy. In any given kingdom or philosophy, there's an economy that goes with that kingdom, that politic, that philosophy. So for example, let me throw out there, Jesus teaches a lot about the economy of the kingdom of heaven. He does it all the time. In fact, it's one of the most common things he talks about is the economy of the kingdom of heaven. So what does he prioritize and how does he talk about the resources to get there? So let me me throw out there a question to you. What are some things that Jesus teaches about the economy of the kingdom of heaven, especially those that are strange by our Western standards? So what's an example of something that Jesus teaches about his, the economy of his kingdom. Okay, the last shall be first. I think actually two people said that for me it was in, in uh, stereo. That was really cool. Um, that's, that's a, that is a strange thing. 
the last being first and the first being last, the, the, the leader among us being a servant, and, and the greatest leader being the slave to all. That's, that's a different mindset than we think of, certainly. And so Jesus' economy reverses very often the natural predator-prey economy of life in this fallen world. What's another example? What's that? Okay, so blessed are the poor. In, in Luke, it's, in, in Matthew, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. We all know better usually. But in Luke, it actually is blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who have less resources. In fact, isn't it wild that the only time that we really see Jesus ever impressed by someone giving financial resources is a person who gives essentially nothing? Some widow who gives two small parts of a penny? It literally probably costs more to count them than they're worth. And yet, it's the only time we really see Jesus impressed by someone's financial resources is in her case. Because blessed are the poor. He, he blesses the fact that she doesn't have much to give, and yet she gives it. You're going to hear that theme come up throughout our whole conversation, that, that it is, it's one of the numbers that we keep track of because, you know, builders and architects want to be paid. But, but beyond that, the, the number that matters to us is the percentage of our members who are involved. That's what matters. Um, that's, the rest of it is God's problem, how we, challenge, how we are challenged into the midst of it. I mean, that part of God's problem too. But that is a, we look to ourselves and say, what, what have I been called to do and challenged to do, and how am I going to be involved? It's, it's good. Here's another one. As we know that one of, Jesus's, one of Je the big things in Jesus' economy is unity. Unity is a big deal for him. Last week, Paul cited Jesus' prayers, all of them, and, in, and including in John 17. Listen to what Jesus says in this. If you've never wrapped your brain around this right here. So a lot of John 17, this prayer that Jesus gives, is probably for his apostles, for the 12 or 11 who are there in that moment. And, and yet, at some point, that you'll see this just to be abundantly clear that this is not just about them. Jesus says this in John 17, starting at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. None of us got to walk around with Jesus when he was on the planet. We are believing in Christ through the word of the eyewitnesses who were there, his apostles. So we believe in him through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one. That there's a unity, a unification. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at what his standard for unity is among believers. His standard for unity is the unity of the triune God. That is quite a standard for unity for him to be targeting. That's fantastic. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Wow. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You know, you know why that this is why the world would know? that God had done something when we are unified, when we are especially perfectly unified, is because that is clearly a miracle. If you've ever met any humans, you know we are not going to be unified on our own. 
There's just too much that divides us. There's so many things that are different. And by the way, that is accepted and understood because uniformity isn't what Scripture's calling us to. He's not asking us to be uniform. What he's calling for us to be is unified. Unified in the things that really do matter, like this. Of course, there are differences. Ephesians 4 unpacks them. There are different gifts. There are different amounts of faith. There are different skill sets. There's different thing, backgrounds. We come from different places, different personalities, different ethnicities, different sexes. That We come from all of that, and that's different. But even all of those differences are unified in the person of Christ like, we are, like He is unified to the Father. That is His standard for unity. And, and so what happens when we create, when we look to accomplish something that's bigger than any one of us, that allows us to be involved in something that would be thought of kind of like unity. That we are unified in something because we're seeking something that none of us, not, neither of us could do. But that all of us might could. And that's a big part of what this is all about. You're going to hear the excitement of this, this miracle of unity that is called throughout Scripture, harmony. Different voices, different volumes, again, different types of voice and tenor, and yet singing one song. We don't want uniformity. That's not what's called for. Harmony. It's a major work of the church. When we come together to accomplish something, we each get to be involved. And when each of us does our part, all of us get to accomplish something. The parts that are sung together create beautiful music. The parts that are the things that are given or served in unity create the opportunity to do more than any of us, any one of us ever could. We're going to be looking a lot over this month to the to the to the man named Nehemiah in the Bible. Um, we're going to talk more about him, but let me just jump into just jump straight to one of these examples in Nehemiah chapter ten. In Nehemiah chapter 10, Nehemiah is giving this instruction to the people to bring the first of our dough. See, for those of you who think it's uncomfortable to talk about money in the church, there it is right there. So you bring the first of your dough and your contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor." Nehemiah is calling the people to something that they cannot accomplish unless they are unified. The miracle that Nehemiah that accomplished is accomplished through Nehemiah, honestly, when you read through it, is less about the building of a wall, which we'll unpack. And it is more about the fact that the people were unified to build a wall. That's what's so shocking. The shock is when human beings are unified. And when people see that on the outside, they have the opportunity to say, I think there may be a God. I think there may be somebody who redeems things. I think there may be somebody who does miracles because I've met some of these people. And they aren't the type of people who unify easily. Some aspects of growth, so teach you another term, some aspects of growth grow kind of naturally, normally, slowly, um, like on a graph, and we'll look at some graphs over the next few weeks, kind of a, a graph, they just kind of gently increase when they're growing. And typically, for example, in a healthy church, that's what church growth looks like, that there's this kind of general, gentle, there, there are peaks, there's Easter, and then there's COVID, right? There's Christmas Eve, and then there's snowpocalypse. So you'll see that when we look at, gra at graphs. You'll see some high points and low points. But generally speaking, you see this gentle, consistent growth um, in a positive way. 
And, and, and we talk about all the time as a church, we're not afraid to lose people as long as we lose them for the right reasons. When we lose them to minister at another church or lose them to minister to their family or we lose them to minister um, overseas or something like that, like we rejoice in that. We are happy to lose you for the right reasons. But we want to be healthy when we engage in these conversations. And, and this is an example of that. So here's another one. That's how often population happens in a healthy church. Now, that being said, there are other things that grow in church that don't grow like that. They grow in big bites. Staff is one. From a percentage perspective, you've got 10 staff, and then you've got 11, you hire one more, and now you've got 11 staff. That's a 10% growth in staff, just like that. And that looks like a stair step, right? That you have, big, you have this big jump. And so what happens is, sometimes you seem behind, and then sometimes you seem ahead, and then that gets behind, and it t- you have to, like that, right? And so there's a stair step. The greatest example of that, certainly in most churches' lives, and most businesses' lives, is construction, building buying or building something. When we do that, in business terms, these long, long, larger term investments are called capital investments. So now you know the meaning of a term that you may have never known why. You've been to churches and nonprofits and, and all over, and they do a capital campaign, and you're like, I don't, okay, that just means they're asking to ask for money. That's all I know that means. Well, the capital are the long-term investment items. Again, if you run a business, you know about how this works. If you work at a church, again, the capital are those big stair steps that happen, especially in regards to construction type of things. This is the most common. Over the next few weeks, so next week I'm going to unpack much more detail. Then we'll skip a week. One of the cool things about skipping a week is that that's we're skipping that because it's D Now Weekend, Disciple Now Weekend. Disciple Now Weekend, what we will have during this service is about a billion students join us in this service, all at the same time, probably all wearing the same t-shirt, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be awesome. Um, But it's going to be a reminder of why one of our capital things that we're investing in is student ministry space, Um, because there's a lot of them. If you ever see it, you'll, you'll get more about this information. But the question over the next few, the next month, two Sundays of the next month is going to be why, what, and why now? And that's a good question. Those are good questions to ask. But today I want to more answer the question, why ever? Why why would we ever do this type of stuff? Why at all do we do these things? And one of the things I want you to hear is one of the reasons churches do these things is for the power of unification. Meaning, and people always ask this, so if someone just cuts you a check for the entire amount, what would you do with it as a church? What would you all do with it? And, And my answer is, be disappointed. Because that wouldn't be very unifying. That wouldn't give us a great opportunity. If someone wants to do that, fine. We'll find something to do with a lot of it while the rest of us have to fill in the gap. Some, some way we would deal with that. Because it's something that it can't just be supernatural. We, we don't, what we don't want is for some human to step in and just lay out a bunch of cash in order to make something happen. We want to be unified in this. We want to work together to solve this. Why ever? So this is why I want to introduce you to the man named Nehemiah, who I referenced a few seconds ago. He has been a magnificent source of inspiration for anyone looking at at any major project for the last 2,500 years. If you've been in church for a long time, this isn't your first time to hear Nehemiah referenced when it comes to some kind of big project, right? So the bigger the challenge is going to be, the more likely Nehemiah is going to get dragged into the whole thing. Because it's a big, when you have a big scary project or something that feels really big, that's the way it works. So who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah worked for one of the great powerful emperors of Persia. 
I don't mean great as in good. He was a terrible human being. But he was extremely powerful, this, this emperor of Persia. And he was given, when, when Nehemiah is working for this emperor of Persia, news comes to him that the exiles, remember this from Daniel, that the people of Israel who had been exiled um, to Babylon and then Persia, many of them had gone back home. But the word comes to Nehemiah that they're not rebuilding Jerusalem. And in fact, they're in a horrible poverty-stricken situation, and they're scared all the time. And, and those, they were not rebuilding Jerusalem. In fact, they hadn't even rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem yet, and so no one would be safe in the city of Jerusalem. It was destroyed and in ruins. Nehemiah 1.4 says this. Nehemiah says, as soon, and one of the things you love about Nehemiah is it's first person. So we get the inner workings of a great leader. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah hears about his people's struggle. He hears about the conditions of the holy city, and he is struck to weep and mourn. Nehemiah is inspired by a problem. Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. The people need to be safe. But it's so often the case, in order to do one thing, you've got to do this thing. Everybody run into that? Here's, I've got this project. You've got this little simple little project you've got to do at the house. And you get to go to that project, and you, you, you start whatever the project is, and that's when you realize, oh, there's more to this than I realized. Or I'm missing some of the tools that I need to get this done. Those, that, wives, that's not just your husband's looking for an excuse to buy more tools. That really does happen. I'm telling you. So, I mean, not always, but that does happen sometimes. And so you start on the project and you're like, oh, I know, I'm going to, I just, and so you end up, in order to do this 30 minute project, you end up spending four hours driving to and back, to and fro from the hardware store, right? And, and then you have to call someone who actually knows how to fix it. And then you search out something else is wrong and you're like, what is that? I don't even know what this is. And you end up, in order to do this thing, you got to do this thing. And then before you can do that, you got to do this and this and that and et cetera, running backwards. I, I have zero experience in car maintenance and engine repair and that kind of stuff. But I've got to imagine, my friends who are, that is like, that is like their life, is this reverse cascade of what it takes to fix some small problem in an engine, right? And so that's what Nehemiah runs into. Does Nehemiah want to rebuild the city? Yes. The temple, I'm sure he does. The palace, I'm sure he does. But in order to do any of those things, there's got to be a wall. Otherwise, your enemies are just going to come in and take it down again. And this is when Nehemiah begins to teach us the first principle of what it means to lead as a God-fearer, and that is prayer. He prays. In fact, he's going to model this over and over again. There are up to nine prayers in this short book in the Bible. Nehemiah models it. He realizes there's a problem, and always what he does first is pray. He finds himself caught in a weird situation. He prays. He finds himself in a situation where he doesn't know what to do next, and he's totally stuck. So he prays. Now, he's praying out of bad news, so he also mourns and weeps. What we're going to be talking about is not bad news, it's good news, but it's still, either way, we're going to be unified in prayer. And by the way, we pray all the time. I hope you pray for your church all the time. But there are people praying faithfully, daily, over and over again, to pray for the direction of this church. Every time our leadership board meets, we either sing or more often now pray through um, the, the, the ancient hymn, Be Thou My Vision. We pray that God would protect us from our vision. They would protect us from our wisdom. And that He would be our vision. And He would be our wisdom. And He would be our best thought. That no one else's measure of success would matter to us but His. That's the only one that we care about. So we pray all the time about that. And we have a lot of people in the church who do. I hope you do as well. Why? 
Why do we need God's guidance so fiercely? I'll show you. Matthew 16, 18 gives us this insight. Jesus is sitting in Caesarea Philippi, and he has asked his students, so Caesarea Philippi is a center of pagan worship. It was the Las Vegas uh, or the San Francisco or the New Orleans or whatever of the pagan, that part of the world. It was, it was the home for pagan worship. The temple to Zeus was there, the temple to Pan was there, many others. And he takes these young boys into this horrible situation. And in the midst of that setting where the worship of all these pagan gods is going on, he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they give him a bunch of different answers. And he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is Jesus' answer in Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Petros. You are stone. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's his church. That's why we're so desperate to get his insight. That's why we don't trust our agendas and our visions and our, and our wisdom. We don't trust it because it's not our church. We're just shepherds, under-shepherds. He is the over-shepherd. It's his church. And you guys have done a great job the last few years of selecting leadership board members who get this who get this and understand it, who humbly engage with the question of what does it mean to shepherd a church that is owned by the almighty maker of heaven and earth. It's his church. Now, incidentally, it's one of my favorite places to speak on the entire planet is Caesarea Philippi because there's no temples there anymore. They're just these crevices carved in the wall where the temples used to be. They're all gone. What is there every time we go is two or three other groups with us who are teaching the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Right there, 2,000 years later, the gates of hell, gone. And Christ is proclaimed dozens of times a day in that site, almost like he had called it, right? The gates of hell did not stand, at least in that spot. So we pray this. This is one of our key passages we look to among leadership in our church. is Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So what we need is a church full of people who don't trust in their own understanding, who don't lean on their own understanding, who are not wise in their own eyes, but instead lean on Him. Before COVID, a team was formed. Before COVID. Because we saw these things coming. A, a team was formed to talk and pray and offer up ideas. We met several times. Then professionals were prayerfully considered, brought in, and their expertise was engaged with as we looked at these different things. Now as we visit these next steps, we continue to gather people to pray and to consider and to discuss. In fact, some groups have been gathering on Wednesday nights already for the last few weeks, praying for God to guide us in the conversation about a capital campaign. Praying, considering, and discussing. So what are our prayer plans as a church? I'm glad you asked. Um, Blake has agreed to take point from the staff perspective, gathering us and leading us in prayer. So over the next few weeks, you're going to start getting emails. Uh, there's going to be links to websites where we have prayer opportunities, opportunities to gather and pray. All that kind of stuff will be there. And that's all going to be coming out over the next few weeks. Um, here's an example. This is, this is the, the prayer um, emphasis for today. I think we have a video with Blake. No volume. Uh, today's uh, prayer focus is, Lord, help us catch your vision. And that comes from Isaiah 43, 19, where it says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 
Uh, and so we're asking God, we're requesting, Lord, help us to see Tyler and the world with your eyes. So let's pray a brief prayer together. God, help us to uh, really see Tyler with your eyes, God, that we would have compassion and we'd be able to see the needs of those who don't yet know Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right, we all keep praying. Uh, we're reaching the world. So many who, uh, so be watching for social media, emails, that kind of stuff for this to guide us as a church. Um, but many who attend and the local church and even engage in local church often don't serve at all or don't give at all or don't engage in small groups at all. And, and you're missing out on a really great opportunity. Um, we're encouraged in Scripture to be intentional and disciplined in the way that we do these things. Um, one pastor that I, I watched warned that, that when you give without a sense of strategy and plan for who you give and where you give and how you give, then that opens you up to emotional manipulation. You will just end up giving your resources, your time, your energy, your money to whoever has the best sob story. And very often that person with the best sob story is just a con artist. Um, and you don't, you don't want to be falling into those traps. Yes, we want to listen to the leadership of the Spirit. I'm not minimizing that or to our own hearts. But to be, be, be cognizant of the truth that it is okay that we give in a strategic and disciplined way. Those aren't in competition with each other. One of the ways we do that here at this church and the church, uh, one of the churches I grew up in is through something called a pledge. Now, you've grown up probably if you watch TV or listen to radio hearing about pledge drives. That's a normal thing that, that we, people do. This, but you still probably don't know what that is. So that you know, you just a minute ago pledged to support these families with prayer and with teaching and disciple making. And so you, I, I won't ask you what that meant that you did that because I don't want to put you on the spot. Instead, I'll just tell you what it means when we pledge something. A pledge is a faith-based commitment. In particular, about the giving of resources by us in coordination with our family and with God. But the most important part is that beginning part. It is a faith-based commitment. We commit to invest gifts, talents, resources in a certain direction. We sow, we water, we tend, and then in faith, we live in utter dependence on Him to make something grow. That's the idea. A pledge was a huge faith builder for my parents when they were young in their faith. And it's one of the things I love about them. Um, is their ability that when we step out in unity and we say, this is something I commit to, I'm going to do this, even when we don't know how we're going to pull it off, what that means is when God then pulls it off, we know it was him that did it. So for my parents, it was a big deal um, that my dad, uh, my, they, were, they were given one of, the, one of those deals where he went and prayed and she went and prayed separately and they wrote down their numbers and they came together and the numbers matched. And so that's already kind of cool, like, because, you know, we don't always agree with each other when we're married. And so when you have some agreement there, that's kind of cool. The problem was it was a number that neither of them knew where they were going to come up with that kind of money. <clears throat> but they believed that was what the number God had given them, so they went with it. Later that summer, so my dad, I mean, you've heard me reference this, my dad taught at a, um, uh, a wilderness school during the summers up in uh, Jackson Hole. And I guess typically they thought, we're bringing you to Jackson Hole. We don't need to pay you anything, right? You're... You're coming to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, you're welcome. Like that's a, that was like, that was their job, right? And, and this year, after they made this pledge for the first time, apparently um, they, they came to him and said, hey, we're going to pay you a certain amount um, for the sessions that you come up and teach. And the sessions were one-third 
the value, that session was going to be one-third the value um, of the pledge that they had given, that this money they were not expecting. But it turned out the way he taught it, he actually was teaching three sessions. And so the number that they had committed to together in faith was the exact number of additional income that they had in no way expected and would never have assumed was coming. That kind of thing, that kind of thing is a huge faith builder when you experience that. When you go, wow, we feel like God gave us this number that we don't know how it's going to come into existence. And then something special happens and it comes into existence. And I grew up with that type of thing, hearing those stories. In fact, on that note, if you were a part of either of the capital campaigns that this campus has been in, um, the, uh, the Limitless campaign and then later the City on a Hill campaign, if you were involved in that pledging in any way and you have a story of how God provided, we'd love to hear about it. It would be, it'd be really encouraging probably for the rest of us. So with that in mind, I grew up hearing stories like that. We spread them out over three years, which is why we don't always get them. But it's like a miraculous sign for our weak little hearts. Um, Okay, so here's a strategy that Jesus encourages when it comes to setting aside our resources, his economy. Ready? Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures, um, sorry, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going, to, I'm going to jump all the way, I'm going to jump down a little ways past the Corinthians passages, and I'll come back to those for you guys in the next few weeks. I was going to reference them again anyway. But, but God, the, the, what happens in the Corinthian passages, we're going to learn that Paul is actually traveling around gathering resources from different churches for Jerusalem, for the saints in Jerusalem. He's in gathering, he's encouraging them to set aside money little bits at a time so that when he shows up, when they want to give, that they're able, to, they're able to give something to the saints in Jerusalem. And by that, he means Peter, John, Andrew, Bartholomew. These churches, these new Christians from Galatia and Sparta and Philippi and other places that they can gather a little. And he says, do a little bit at a time. And that way, when I show up, you can give. And we're going to look at that because it's amazing. This is the story. It's a storyline that runs through the New Testament that many of us are totally unaware of, is this gathering for the saints. But I want to connect what I was just saying, this idea of, of, not, of, of, of not building our economy purely just on this planet. Well, then how does that work when we're talking about a capital campaign that's going to actually hopefully build buildings here on this earth? How do you coordinate those? Well, the other day um, with the leadership board um, talking about this, praying about this, thinking about this, um, Bobby Hicks, who's a member of our leadership board, sent this in a text, and he didn't know till first service I was going to quote him on this. Uh, be careful about sending texts to your pastor. Never know when they're going to turn up in a sermon, right? So here's what he wrote to us, encouraging us. In thinking about last night and what we are passionate about the capital campaign, part of Psalm 34, 8 came to me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We have a God that is over the top generous and participating in something that God is part of brings us to the goodness of God. If you've never participated in and given to God, this could be a chance to see how God can transform mere dollars into treasures. Treasures that are headed to be laid up in heaven. This is about so much more than buildings. The rewards are eternal. That's the picture that we get to be unified and engaging in. So many, the vast majority of our population 
in some way invested in that building that sits up there uh, just a, a few hundred yards up the hill. And I don't know how many thousands of hours of children's ministries, of children being invested in up there have been done. But if you gave prayer, time, energy, or money to that, that's part of what you invested in. That's how God takes mere dollars and turns them into treasure. Especially when we're talking about something as kind of, I don't know, small as a building project. Um, in many ways, it's the, it's the least important thing that we do as a church. But hopefully it gives us the opportunity to do some of the things that God has called us to do. We'll talk more about that over the next few weeks. Um, it is nothing but generosity on God's part that He allows us to be involved in what He's doing. He doesn't need us, but He gives us the opportunity to do it. Before we accept our roles, I want to encourage us to do what Nehemiah did. I want us to proclaim His greatness. Communicate our readiness. Confess our sins, as John led us through that earlier. Accept our identity as His servants and trust Him to work through us. So spend a little bit of time these next few weeks looking at these before we jump back into 1 Samuel, Lord willing, in March. And in a minute, we're going to have a little time of invitation. In fact, if you'll stand, we have a little time of invitation. If you're, not, if you're new to South Spring, we do this every week. The assumption is that there's something you need a few minutes before you rush off and get involved with whatever you're doing, with feeding little babies or, get, or, 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 or feeding you know, their dads who are probably hungry or, or whatever right now, the next, um, or their moms. And so getting out of here and going somewhere to a restaurant or something, um, or going home, like the, all the different things that will distract us so quickly as soon as we leave here. And the vast majority of us, we get up, we start to move out of here, and our hands go to our back pockets or our purses to pull our phones out to see if, anybody, see if we still matter in the world um, while we've been out of it for 35 minutes. So, the, so to encourage us to take just a few minutes and focus, continue to focus on what God has for us. What is the response? Does someone today hear about a God who they didn't understand before and they realize they need to put their faith through the testimony of baptism that they said, I want, I want to know the God those kids know. Um, through the testimony of the, of the family dedications, I want to be a part of something like that. Or, or maybe through the discussion of a God who loves us enough to let us be involved in what he's doing. If any of that triggered something in you and you said, I need to know who Jesus is, I want to pray and put my faith in him. It's not magic words. It's not an incantation. It's just a conversation. And we would love to help you have that conversation if you want or on your own, whatever. Reach out to someone who you know loves him well. That being said, there may be people in the room who you need to make something right with, and you need to take time today to go schedule that time or, or get together with that person or to somehow restore that relationship. Or maybe there's something else going on and you just need to pray. Um, you need to make something right with the Lord or just to thank Him for how great He is. Maybe you've been through our welcome home process, you've talked to Lance and others, and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family and, uh, and be part of what God is doing here. We would love to have you do that as well. Whatever it is the Lord is leading you to do, um, that's what this invitation time is about, is a few minutes to focus in. You can sing, pray, stand in silence, lay on the floor, whatever God guides you to do. Here's the prayer that we model after. This is Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your, faith, your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The very words of God. 